live it well. Thank you for joining me for the kickoff of season three. And I'm so excited to welcome a great guest for this inaugural episode, Nick McCarvel. If you are a fan of tennis, gymnastics, or figure skating, or follow sports, read sports, I'm sure you've seen him or heard him. He's an incredible guy with great stories, and he's just a great storyteller. And so I was so glad that he agreed to, to kick off this season of Live It Well. We had a great conversation talking about how we both picked up, when we both picked up the tennis racket, our experiences with religion. He grew up in Montana. I grew up in Iowa. We both ended up in New York City. He's still there. I'm back in Iowa talked about music we ended up having the same favorite band kind of random but that's what these these episodes are going to be all about those random conversations where can we find common ground where is there just great stories to tell because we all have great stories so live it well is all about having those one-on-one conversations and something that nick said really stood out to me he said in this day and age and the time period we're in dialogue counts and it really does so this conversation is meant to kick that off we talk about all things. I hope you enjoy it. Here now is my conversation with Nick McCarvel. Nick, it has been so long since we've been in the same place at the same time, and we're not at the same place at the same time on this uh, conversation either, but welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, first off. And yeah, this is, I mean, I guess podcasts can thrive in what's been a, you know, a really tough time, I think, for a lot of people. But um, we're we're properly socially distanced, I think, for, for this recording. <laughs> you're, you're, are you in New York right now? Um, no. So I was actually in Indian Wells for the tennis tournament there right. before it got canceled and made the decision to come back to Montana where I grew up and I've got some family here so that felt like a little more of a um, just kind of more of a quiet approach to things and I've been I've been watching and keeping in touch with people in New York where I live full-time but it's been a little um, less crazy to be in Montana that's probably the right place to be at the moment um in Montana, away from most of the uh, most of the big news lately, I would think, especially since you live in New York normally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, I I don't think that anywhere is immune from what's going on, but I've done my best to stay as socially distanced and as inside and independent as possible, as I think we all should be doing. Um, and I obviously am lucky enough to be able to do that, to have a second place to go. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm taking it any less serious, to be honest, and just trying to do my little, little part to try to, um, yeah, try to help this tough situation. It's, it's, uh, you and I both don't work in the medical field and I'm not going to pretend to be a medical person, but it's been, you know, a hundred years since our world has kind of encountered something like this. And so basically no one alive has ever handled this. And then add that to the fact that we're super, super connected now, as opposed to the way it was in 1918, like it's, we're all kind of learning this on the fly. Yeah, totally. I I think so too. And I think a lot of people feel like the carpet has been ripped out from underneath them as far as finances and jobs. And, you know, it, it's a tough time where you look at, 
um, just trying to stay, I think you said connected to people this way and I've been FaceTiming a lot and social <laughs> media, I think has kind of taken on, you know, different lives as far as, you know, people feeling as though they're connected to one another, which is, I think both the beauty and the beast of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, there are very, very serious things happening obviously in our country and around the world. And I, I do think that this is a time to support those in the medical field and to, yeah, to really just try to come together overall. Yeah, I think that's been kind of the interesting thing for me, like watching people actually talk a little bit more, um, as hard as it is when you can't actually be face to face. But um, if it was last weekend, we were supposed to meet up with some friends here in town who have a, a little a little girl as well. And um, so we just we just um, FaceTimed with them from across town, which sounds super dumb, but it was like we still wanted to see you and still wanted to talk to you. And so we did it. We made it happen. Um, but, yeah, we're all kind of doing the best we can with the cards we've been dealt at the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had <laughs> I'm from a big family. I'm one of six kids and there's a lot of nieces and nephews. Now we did a family FaceTime, which was a uh, I think joyous for my parents because we're all in different places and they got to see everyone at once. But um, on FaceTime, like the biggest bubble will pop up as to who's talking. And when there's a lot of kids involved, it was just like floating bubbles. I needed some sort of like drowsy, you know, some sort of like Dramamine or something yeah. to, want to be a part of FaceTime. So where's the where's your where is everyone scattered? Uh, yeah, so my family's across. I mean, I'm in New York usually, and then I've got some family here in Montana. My parents go down in the Southwest for winters, and then I've got a brother in California and another brother who lives in the greater Seattle area, and actually a sister in Boise. So yeah, we're all, we're all kind of spread out, but I usually I'm the outlier by being the New Yorker, but um, I've I've come west for <laughs> the time being. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about you mentioned Indian Wells, a uh, major, for those of you listening who uh, don't know tennis all that well, it's it's a major tennis tournament um, that is held in Indian Wells um, out in California. And um, that was one of the first big sporting events that kind of just said, we talked to the athletes, we can't go forward with the event with everything that's going on in the interest of, of public health. And so talk me through, you were there to cover the event as a reporter um, talk me through what happened on your end and what you saw and what you heard and all those things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy, Richard, how quickly things have changed. Um, so they canceled the event officially on Sunday, March 8th with the, the qualifying event was meant to start the next day. So the, the event officially was meant to start on Wednesday, March 11th, but this was before, the NCAA had announced that they were going to do no crowds. The NBA was going to do no crowds. And then that quickly over those next few days, it was kind of those four or five days. I think it'll kind of be remembered as the week, at least <laughs> yeah. states, where, you know, when I got to Indian Wells, I had been in Hawaii for Davis Cup covering the U.S. men's team there. And it was there was a lot of talk of hand washing and sanitizer and not shaking hands, elbow bump, that sort of thing. But once I got to Indian Wells, um, it was actually the next day that they canceled it. And all the players were there. The, the whole tournament site was dressed up. I mean, this is a place that brings in like 500,000 fans for a two-week event. It's become very international. It's popular on the tennis tour. 
Um, but they basically made the call and actually they didn't really consult with the players that much, which some people faulted them for at the time. But, you know, the the event itself actually would have finished on the 22nd, which is, you know, you, are, you and I are recording this a, a few days after that. Um, <laughs> there was no way that that event was going to finish. No, and no so way. You have to, yeah, you have to give credit to the team there for having the foresight to do what they did because of how much life has changed in the U.S. in the last two weeks. And Miami, which was the next big tournament on the tennis calendar, they subsequently canceled as well. Um, or I guess postponed officially. Um, but, you know, that allowed a lot of the European players to get back home, to get safe. Um, and same goes for players essentially wherever they're from. And now everyone uh, is home. And right now the tennis tour is on hold at least through early June after the French Open. Um, so people are hopeful for the grass season. But, you know, when you realistically look at the calendar, I, I don't, I honestly don't know. No one knows. Yeah. Um, I'd be pretty hopeful for the U.S. Open series and the U.S. Open, but even that is a big question mark. Well, the, the Major League Baseball reached an agreement uh, last night with the, their players' union, and your date. I bring it up because your dates kind of um, are related. They are hopeful at this point that they can get players back um, for a redo of spring training, basically, in mid-May and start sometime in June. That's kind of their high-level timetable, um, and I, I read that this morning. I was like, holy shit, well, that's still, like, two months away. Um, <laughs> so, like, yeah. hey, you're right. I mean, French Open is is off the calendar at the moment. Who knows what happened with Wimbledon, because that starts end of June. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of question marks. Um, yeah, and I actually would, you know, I don't follow Major League Baseball that closely. I would say that's kind of wishful thinking, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that timeline, but, but have at it. I mean, you know, people can make hopeful plans and then, you know, because we're in the situation where this is a really tough time and our, our medical world is being tested in a lot of ways, but we can't rush things back. And so when you look at major sporting events, right now they're talking about a huge number of cases in Louisiana and especially within New Orleans. And they're tracing that back to Mardi Gras, which kind of went on, went off without a hitch. And when you look at these major sporting events, especially in tennis where it's so international, you've got to be really careful as to when we Again, you and I are in the medical field, but when we sort of reintroduce all of this and travel, yeah, it, it's it's going to be, I think it's going to be slower to start than um, some people would think. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be a slow uptick in life again, um, which we all just with. Um, it is what it is. So in, in this new world that you as a reporter work in, um, I happened to catch your Instagram live the other day um, because you're having to kind of change how you do things. And you, like I knew you when you weren't Nick McCarvel, the tennis reporter and Olympics reporter. Um, and so it's, it, you become like this social media guy in, in like the millennial sports world. It's probably the worst way to put it, but like, that's how I, like, I think that's what you are. Um <laughs> What's that like? Like you are you are always on YouTube. You're always on like doing these new things for all these big events. Um, talk us. What what's that like? 
Well, I, I think I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's been really good. You know, I, I've, yeah, you and I have known each other for, I think, some 10 years, but I, um, it's been really good. You, you know, I, I uh, for two years, I was the USA Today tennis reporter, which I, I really lucked out in getting that job and, the, and then worked my butt off when I was and then that was in 15 and 16. And then in 17, I chose to leave that position and really saw an opportunity with social media and the digital space to start doing more stuff front of camera. And so I had, you know, a lot of contacts within tennis that were trusting of me and my ability, which I had done a little bit in front of camera before that. But um, I started working with the Australian Open, actually all of the majors in different ways on doing different presenting roles. And it's been really fun. Uh, I, I think sometimes I feel like you've got to remind yourself and we have to all do this no matter what we do that you can't do it all. So like I'll see a breaking story or I'll see a fellow reporter do something like, oh, I should have thought of that or what if, you know, why didn't I do that or, or, or what have you. But um I've really tried to kind of like find my lane, stay in my lane and then like do what I can the best that I can and not worry about like FOMO or feeling like <laughs> I'm not, you know, like, oh, this reporter did that. I should have whatever. And so, um, you know, and I think it's kind of a lesson in asking and not being afraid of the answer as far as opportunities and just tapping into resources and you know it, it it wasn't an easy road and it wasn't a road that um you know like i i still don't do much broadcast work i think that would kind of be the next frontier for me i most of what i do is digital streaming um ott you know extra coverage the wimbledon channel we stream the entire two weeks and we have very limited amounts of live tennis but we still have an entire dedicated channel that's eight hours a day, the Wimbledon channel. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, it, it's been it's been fun. And I, I obviously consider myself lucky being working in the live sports world, which um, I know is a dream of a lot of people's. And, and I've, I just try to sort of recognize that and um, appreciate that that's sort of my everyday. Yeah, I think to me, like you're in the middle of the spectrum. You've got like, Adam Rippon on the far end of um, kind of what he does. And then you've got just a very, very traditional reporter on the other end. And you're kind of in the middle to me, like how you have taken this channel, this digital channel and kind of made it your own. And like, I've, I've watched your stuff on Wimbledon channel and stuff like that. And like, it's not a typical sit down program. Um, it's fun and engaging and interesting to me, the general fan who, who played tennis growing up like you. And so like, I don't need to know the ins and outs of what was going on in the player's head. Like it's fun to know that, but it's more interesting to me the way that you kind of approach a lot of your conversations with these players because they're still human and they are of the same age where like they're engaging at the same level in the same way. And so it's fun to kind of bring that home in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's what I think always, you know, I, I've gotten the opportunity to cover figure skating and gymnastics at the Olympics, and um, I'm not, like, tennis is the one sport that I cover, I mean, that's most of my work, but I can at least get away with, I 
played it as a kid. I was obsessed with it, watching it on TV. I took proper lessons. Like, I know the sport really well. Whereas in figure skating and gymnastics, I've had to learn a lot of, like, the actual ins and outs of the sport. But where I feel as though I carry my own weight is asking questions, doing my research, and really just wanting to tell stories that, you know, you as a Richard the viewer would want to hear from Simone Biles or Adam Rapon or any of them. And yeah, make it fun, sometimes make it silly, make it accessible, um, give the athletes sort of that platform where, you know, social media has changed all of it. So athletes feel like they have a platform already, but give them that further platform where they really feel like they get to be heard and hopefully give some fans at home the point of view of a of an athlete or an event that they might not have had before. It's so it's so interesting to talk about not knowing a sport you cover. Um, when I was in college, I was assigned to cover um, wrestling, which I had knew nothing about it. I didn't like wrestling growing up. I thought it was stupid. And all I saw were my high school classmates, you know, cutting weight. I was like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. Why would you do that? Um, but then like getting to cover it and learn about it and the ins and outs. And like, now I've got a friend who's, who's little boys into wrestling and he's asking me questions about how the scoring works. And I'm like, I remember how that works. I can talk you through that. And it's just so, it's interesting. Like you just get into it and you become through your work, you can become a fan of these things that you've never really paid attention to. Yeah. Um, and respect the the work that goes into each of these um, different sports. Yeah, and I think you know our world because of social media, our world has become so like segmented or uh, nichified. Like there's so many of these different little niches that exist, and I, I don't, I have not chosen to work in you know one of the big four sports in in the states in particular, but. Um, I, with the storytelling, it's been amazing to kind of like get to know these little worlds and like, you know, the figure skating world is massive and the money in it is big and the personalities are big. And to be able to like kind of bring that to a, sometimes to a more general audience, like when I've worked with NBC, that's been really cool. Um, but then also on the flip side, you have to be very careful when you're kind of teetering into a, a new niche like that, a new world like that, that I I will never tweet something that I'm not certain of or I won't try to be an expert when I that's not my role. Like I, I know, you know, I, I know my lane. I said that earlier, but um, because on social media, you've got so many of these fans and people that are, you know, really experts as far as um, knowing the sports inside and out. So I, I try to stick to the stories and the personalities and the research and um, and kind of use that as my vehicle to connect with the athletes to, yeah, to connect them back to you. Yeah. And that's a, like I said, I think that's, feel like that's your lane and you really own that. And I appreciate that. Um, hmm. so yeah, before we're going to move on to another topic, um, after a break, we're going to go back to your Montana days. Did you know that the sixth leading cause of death in the United States is Alzheimer's disease? And that one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or other dementia, and it kills more than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. I know times are tough, but I'm asking for your help. 
As the chair of the Iowa Board of Directors of the Alzheimer's Association for the next two years, I am working harder than ever to raise awareness and to raise funds to rid the world of Alzheimer's and all other dementias. And your money doesn't just go to research. It goes to care and support groups, which are free by the way. The 24-hour hotline, which is free by the way. To education and awareness programs in every community across the country. And it does go to research. The Alzheimer's Association is the third leading funder of research and the highest funder of research that is a non-governmental entity in the world. And they're making strides each and every day. So please, give it some thought. If you're interested, please click the link in the show notes to donate to our Alzheimer's walk team today. Your money stays in the local communities to impact, to support, and to educate people all across the country about Alzheimer's, the warning signs, and how to get care and support. This is a disease that is quiet, but it's continually taking away lives of people all around us including my great aunt, my neighbor, and a dear family friend. Again, the link is in the show notes to go and support our walk to end Alzheimer's. And if you just want more information, you can go to ALZ.org. Okay, so you, you're back in Montana now, um, kind of relaxing and working and um, probably enjoying a little bit of the, the great outdoors, um, hopefully. No, I don't know what the weather's like at the moment up there in Montana. <laughs> um, but talk me through, you grew up playing tennis. What made you pick up the racket for the first time? Uh, yeah, no, it's been, it's been great to be back home. It's been strange. Um, so I first picked up a tennis racket, I think when I was five or six, and we actually live like two blocks away from a little public park that has four courts. And that's where they run the, um, I grew up in a town called Helena. So that's where they ran the public park uh, summer tennis lesson system. And my mom put me into that, I think when I was, yeah, five or six. And um, I loved it because it was an independent sport and I was good at it and my brothers didn't play it. And um, my dad was quite a good racquetball player, so he that, those skills transferred pretty easily to the tennis court. Um, so I played a lot with my father, and my uncle was a very good tennis player, so he was quite encouraging of me to play tennis. Um, but it just kind of felt like it was m- my own thing. My brothers were really into soccer, and I played soccer growing up, but probably once I was like 10 or 11, I, I stepped away from that. And tennis and track and field kind of became my two loves. And then once high school hit, that was the same season. Um, tennis is a spring sport in Montana. So I chose tennis over track. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And at that point it was kind of my end all be all. So, I, and I had developed into quite a good player and mind you, this is Montana. So it's not like I was competing in like the Southern California or Florida USTA sections, but uh, <laughs> it, it really did become kind of my like existence of like, I was watching tennis all the time. I became a huge Agassi, Guga, Celis, Capriati fan. Like it, I, it, it kind of became 
my little world that I got to own. And that felt good, especially as a younger brother to two older brothers. It was a little bit of the thing that I had as my own. And that felt good in a family of six. <laughs> so like, I was, I, I came from a family of three and my brother was the baseball football player and the one who was um, well, much more popular than I was. But, but tennis, I agree with you. Like it was just this thing that it was mine. And I didn't need anybody else. I chose it. Um, I picked it up because there was a racket in the garage. I was like, oh, I should go use this. And like, I just picked it up and decided to play and I enjoyed it. Um, but I think a, a lot of the people that I know picked up tennis for that reason, that it just became their thing. And um, it allowed us to kind of grow mm. independent of a team sport, you know? Yeah, totally. And I, I the one thing I also didn't mention is... Um, in our back, in our alley behind my parents' garage is our neighbor's garage, which is kind of this like weird plaster material. So the wall is very smooth. And I played more, I don't think I'll ever play as much like actual real life tennis as I played against that wall. <laughs> um, and when I was in high school, I was like top five in the state. And they did an article about me in the local paper and it was all about the wall that like uh, developed my tennis game because aside from those lessons, I would go to lesson, you know, for a 45 minute lesson and then I'd come home and I'd hit against the wall for three hours. Um, or I'd watch breakfast at Wimbledon, you know, from six to nine and then I'd play tennis outside from nine to noon. So yeah, I think you're right. The, and that's actually something I think that tennis, it, it can be such an individual sport. Obviously, I think we encourage people to feel like it's a, a team, a community activity. But um, yeah, that that was a big part of it for me, too. It's so funny you mentioned Breakfast at Wimbledon. Like, I grew up watching that, and I love it, and I miss it. It's not on, you know? So it's... <laughs> <laughs> Those those were the days. First it was, well, at least for me, it was NBC, and then HBO had it for a while, and TNT, yes. but then it went back to NBC, and yeah, now it's on ESPN. It is. Um, who You mentioned Agassiz, Capriati, Celis, and Guga were your, your favorites. Um, if you had to pick one, pick your favorite player growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, those were kind of my favorite. Four, those are the four players I really remember like caring about. Um, I remember I pointedly didn't like Steffi Graf. <laughs> I loved I loved Monica. I don't know exactly why. And so this was like this would have been early mid '90s. So it was after she was Monica Seles was stabbed during yeah. a match by a fan in '93. And so I like really followed her comeback. I would like. I would go on to, I remember CBS Sportsline was like my go-to website for scores. And I would like print out Monica Seles, like AP stories from the internet. Like, I don't know why my parents let me do that. Um, but I, I think Monica would be kind of my like, and I told her that actually at one point we did an event together. <laughs> um, I've done a few things with Monica, but uh, the first thing we did together was at the U.S. Open a few years ago. She was partnering with Amex. And I told her, I was like, you are my favorite. And I don't think she really appreciated that I was essentially, like, calling her old. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, she, she, would, she would be her... 
Uh-huh. Probably Guga and Capriati would be a, a close second, third. Okay. Uh, so my guess is between between the Sampras and the Agassi match, you, you would be cheering for Agassi. Yeah, I actually don't remember have, having strong feelings about Sampras. I think because I my game was more like an Agassi, like I was a baseliner and I liked to like get into rallies. Like I thought that was more exciting than say like a big serve like Sampras had. But I didn't remember really feeling one way or the other about Pete Sampras. Okay, that's fair. Um, I remember in Capriati's comeback um, when she finally won that Grand Slam that it had eluded her as a as a teenager. Um, or fuck, did she, did she win one as a teenager? She won the Open, didn't she? I'm totally messing this up right now. No, 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 you're not messing it up at all. She made, she had never made a slam final until, yeah, kind of her quote-unquote comeback. So okay. she had made a, a collection of semis in the early 90s, and then 99, she had a pretty good season, and then, yeah, 2001, she won the Australian Open. First time. Right, okay. Thank you. So I remember, I remember that because I, we, you and I had watched her growing up, and then she felt, you know, celebrity got the best of her, and and then she decided for herself that I'm gonna do this. Um, and I just remember watching her. I was so excited to see her win and fight back. Um, in life and in tennis. So that one, I remember that one a lot. Um, yeah, I, I remember. I actually don't know if it was 01 or 02. She won the Australian Open both year years. I think it was 01. The final was so hot. So, and, oh, yeah, her and Serena? No, so both years it was Hingis, actually. And anyway, she had, she had like, sock, she had issues with her socks. And I just remember her dad taking his socks off and giving <laughs> Jennifer his socks, which is very random. <laughs> very random. <laughs> but you do what you got to do when you're playing at a Grand Slam final. <laughs> yeah, um, precisely. So, also want to touch on growing up in Montana. Um, I grew up in Iowa, so not the same, but not all that different probably when you really look at it. Um, we both grew up um, as gay men in the 90s um, and the early 2000s, I guess. Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in a, we're a big family, obviously, and a, a very supportive family, but also family in Montana that's obviously a very red rural state um so yeah I mean my queer experience as a young kid was not really knowing anyone like me um and feeling I think that was probably a lot of the reason why I took to tennis like it felt very independent um I also felt like maybe I connected well to like these strong females like Capriati and Celis who I think maybe I related to more because of my feminine qualities as a little kid. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, there are so many other people I think that have had a, a struggle with their coming out or, or um, not had the support from their family or their community that they might need in that time, which is a really, really tough time. If we, if we talk about it, just thinking about a kid and I even in my time being here have kind of had moments of like, oh, wow, like I remember still being in the closet or still questioning myself or, or what have you or still, you know, waking up mornings thinking today is the day that I'm not going to be gay anymore. And um, 
that obviously didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> um, the funny thing, though, is that we grew up quite religious, and I actually, faith was what really brought me through my coming out. My faith was probably my strongest in my coming out phase. So 16, 17, 18, 19, like I had, I was part of my church group and I was going to Catholic youth conventions and I was very into like Christian pop, (laughs) Um, which is, which is all, I think it's kind of strange to pair that with like coming out, but it just gave me the sense of like self and love and embracing self with love. (laughs) And um, yeah, uh, it it really was, I think, the thing that kind of gave me at least the belief that I needed to trust my heart and it didn't have anything to do or or didn't have, if you boiled it down, it came down to a feeling. And that feeling was, is that I was attracted to and felt drawn to other men. And that was something that I felt in my heart. And so, um, you know, probably over a two or three year period came out to siblings and parents and friends in Montana. And some of those went better than others. But um, through and through, I had, I, I definitely had like great support from my two brothers, which was huge. And my sisters as well. Um, And so that kind of gave me that grounding to feel as though I could move forward with it. And then went to college in Seattle, which felt like that was a little bit of a departure and had the chance to feel like a a wide-eyed kid in a big city. It's, I'm laughing because... uh, we both went to Christian pop as as a part of our process and I grew up Lutheran. So like it was very important to me too. And so you're not wrong. Like the feeling that yeah. um, it's just about your heart and like just this sense of love. And at that point it's okay. And so um, who is your favorite Christian pop group? <laughs> uh, so my first concert ever um, was at the Iowa state fair. My mother took all of us uh, kids yeah. Um, to see to see Point of Grace and for him, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but now, like, if I still listen to Christian music um, on occasion, and I still go back to Michael W. Smith, um, the older stuff, because um, that's what I grew up with. Um, trying to think of what else, but those are probably my go-to's. What my, about you? My like extreme. I like loved Avalon, and they were oh, like, Avalon, yeah, yeah, very Christian pop. And then I actually loved that. And actually, this kind of happened while I was coming out, after I came out, was I loved Switchfoot. And they started out, obviously, as a Christian band. But then they kind of had that crossover moment into the mainstream. And that felt very empowering to me, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that you said that, um, because they are my absolute favorite band. Like, that will never change at this point. Um, And I think I've seen them four times in concert. and my latest tattoo um, is actually some of their song lyrics. So um, nice. I love them. Yeah. That's great. Uh, and actually, I don't know if you follow Switchfoot on Instagram, um, but every day, like the last week and a half, the lead singer's been performing a song of, um, on his Instagram, which is kind of fun. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah, I don't follow them, so I'll have to check it out. Um, let's move on a little bit and wrap this up with kind of how you went from 
tennis player hitting against a wall in Montana to covering these international sporting events. What the hell happened? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of steps in between, but I, I see what you mean. Um, you know, I I kind of had this like dream in mind, or I, I don't even know how to put it, but I there was no like cheating the system or cutting corners. Like I went to journalism school in Seattle. I interned at a magazine, a newspaper, and another magazine. I like kind of did all of those steps to make sure that I was putting together the right resume and career path to get into what I'm doing now. Um, I think one of my first big breaks, I was talking about this recently on a different podcast, was um, the New York Times. When I moved to New York after I went to college in Seattle, the New York Times, this is 2008, 2009, right when like block podcasts are kind of like having a moment right now and i would say 10 years ago blogs were having a moment um not that they're not still relevant but it was like everything needed a blog and when i moved to new york the new york times had a blog for like everything including tennis and i like incessantly pitched them like just i kept emailing and calling and found the editor's email and like guest you know first initial dot last name at nytimes.com and like trying to get <laughs> people uh, because I knew that they needed content to fill this blog and that was actually kind of my quote unquote first big break is being able to write for the New York Times straight sets blog um, because it essentially allowed me to call myself a New York Times writer without like fully lying <laughs> um, but yeah I had my first actually my very first New York Times blog piece was on Steffi Graf turning 40 in June of 1999 and it was like recounting her best moments on tour because it was also 10 years after she had retired in 99. Um, and, and you know I, I won't draw it out but that kind of led me to you know one thing to the next and I did mention my time at USA Today and then departing to do more of the video stuff, but it really is like no corners cut and, you know, putting yourself out there and working for free and then not working for free and just trying to see through the process and not rush any of it either. Yeah, that's like definitely something that I think people even today still struggle with is they want to make it to the top in like five seconds and uh you got to put in the work you got to put in the sweat equity and get there yeah um, and even what i said to you earlier like you know i've had a lot of good success doing what i've done you know I wor i've worked for all four of the slams i've worked for nbc um some great newspapers and magazines a lot of my digital presenting is live streamed and youtube and instagram and what have you um but i still haven't really like quote unquote made it in the broadcast world so that's kind of the next frontier for me is trying to get into like traditional linear tv but that's a really competitive market and my background is digital my background is facebook live and a twitter show <laughs> and as you mentioned you know the wimbledon channel isn't the sort of tv format that people are used to and so I know that there's no cutting corners with it. I have to be patient. I have to take meetings. I have to make the right contacts. Um, but I also have enjoyed the process as it's come. And, and it's I've learned every step of the way. 
And that's the biggest thing too, Richard, is like not feeling like feeling as though you're learning at every step of the way. I think that's really important too. Well, yeah. And, and like you're, you're, you've been kind of pushing, at least from the tennis side, like pushing them in that direction. And so like you're learning along with them and um, what works and what doesn't, what can we do that's different? And, you know, to make it fun for me, the person at home watching who can be on my phone or my computer or my TV or on a pod, like on a podcast, like how can I enjoy what you guys are doing when I want to enjoy it? So, so it's like ever changing too, but I will say you're good on camera. You feel like really like you're just comfortable. Like, and not everybody is like being on camera is hard. Um, well, so. and I, I think that's actually where it's helped me that I sort of started grassroots. Like, you know, the stuff I started doing was like small shoots with an iPhone or one camera guy who like maybe had a microphone and that's kind of allowed me to be more conversational. And I mean, that's always kind of been my approach um, versus, you know, like staid sort of scripted TV or teleprompter TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so I think that that's kind of um, shaped my style as well. Yeah. Maybe that's what I appreciate about watching you, um, not to toot your horn for you, but like it does seem more just like a free flowing whatever happens on set is going to happen and we're going to have fun with it. And, um, because that's, what's fun for me, the viewer too. Like, like I said, I can read the X's and O's of tennis and whatever sport, but I want to know the person and feel like I I'm cheering for them and, and I'm a part of their success, um, which is just different, I think, than just traditional, you know, words on paper reporting. Yeah. And I, th I think that as things have become, as we've grown into more of an internet society and we've been nichified and segmented and fragmented, like human connection still is love of story and person and experience. And so th the sport of tennis is always going to be what it is. It might change in small forms, whether it be scoring formats or tournaments or, or what the pro tours look like. But I want you to get to know the player and the person and the personality that is playing that sport so that you feel more invested as the fan or the person that's watching. Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to – that will lead into some of my last questions here that I'm really kind of curious about. Um, these will be quick hits. Um, what – as a fan, not as a reporter, but as a fan, what, was, what would you say the best match is that you ever – watched either in person or at home in montana oof man <laughs> this is supposed to be quick hits yeah. uh I mean, <laughs> you know this is a heartbreaker i think for a lot of people but i did cover i got to cover quite extensively for wimbledon uh, for the wimbledon channel the federer djokovic wimbledon final which was somehow just last year um yeah that was obviously <laughs> it's heartbreaking for a lot of federer fans obviously and it wasn't the best quality but i think the drama was there and then if i like harken back to my like at home days the capriati justine and a u.s open semi-final 2003 youtube it if you've never seen it it's full of drama <laughs> i will i will find the link and put that in the in the show notes uh <laughs> Who would you say is the best 
interview interviewee that you get to get to work with? I Federer, Federer is exceptional. He he always kind of understands the shape of an interview and not necessarily what you need, but kind of how he can meet you halfway. Um, tennis fans listening will know Andrea Petkovic. I love doing anything with Petco. Um, you know, I just appreciate athletes who engage and are sometimes like the mood isn't the best or, you know, it's been a tough day or they're stressed or whatever. But, um, yeah, there's been there's been some great moments, obviously, to have people just like open up to you. Like, I think that's always the biggest piece of it. But yeah, I have, I have worked on the spectrum of very challenging and also very agreeable interview subjects. <laughs> um, that actually reminded me, I'm going to, one more serious question um, before, before we have to wrap up. Um, you have been involved with um, media events and events in general of, of um, talking about LGBT issues, LGBTQ issues in sport. Um, what's that been like? What's the reception been like? Um, and what's kind of been the impact of that, of those efforts? Oh yeah. Thanks for asking. It's been great. You know, we, uh, I started in the summer of 2018, we did a LGBT tennis event before the U S open. And I, I just took it upon myself to begin this series of events because I felt like there was a little bit of a gap within tennis especially in talking about queer issues and brian behaley who is a former top 100 player ended up coming to be a part of this presentation and it's just been good to have the dialogue richard you know part of what we're talking about today um but just to continue moving the ball forward and last year at the us open we had we were really lucky to have Billie Jean King and Billy Bean and Jason Collins and Adam Rapon. Brian Vahaley was a part of it. Uh, and then we had a couple out lesbian tennis players that are actually a couple on tour, Alison Van Utvank and Hret Minen. They're Belgian. And it was really special. And I, I think that you know, dialogue counts and conversations count. And maybe sometimes social media can feel like an echo chamber or the events that I've done. Maybe it feels like we've only sort of been speaking to the same audience, but I watched it pour over into the press room. Novak Djokovic has been asked about queer issues in tennis. Federer was asked about it. Um, you know, I, I've sort of in different ways have spoken to different players about it um so it's been great to kind of have the dialogue on that side and then to catch the attention of say like the atp or the event we did last year at wimbledon had billy jean king and we actually did it on the grounds of the all england club which if you know tennis it's a very sort of old school classic organization and they welcomed an lgbt event with open arms which I thought was fantastic. So yeah, you know, just the shape of all of it coming together has has really been encouraging, and I've been happy to be a small part of it. No, and I, I've appreciated it from from the outside looking in, just because as a gay kid in the Midwest, you know, 20 years ago, how important that would have been, and I'm sure still today, how important those conversations are to fans of all ages. You know, seeing them take place to know that there is a place 
a welcome place for for all athletes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that you and I grew up as sports fans, but I also think that there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of kids out there that don't feel like they have a place in our society. And if you really stop and think about that in true terms, whether it is skin color or religion or who you are as a as what your sexual identity is, what your gender identity is, we have to continue to make space for those that are classified as different, those who feel different, those who feel like they're not part of sort of the everyday societal norm that we've come to know. And that's going to be the pressure that that culture faces for decades and generations to come. I think <laughs> long past, Richard, you and I, our lifetimes. And so to just kind of do that one little thing of it's okay to be different. It's okay to be who you are and to to feel as though that difference is what makes you a part of the whole. 100%. Um, could not agree with you more on that. Um, all right. I have four questions that I ask everyone at the end of end of the episode. Let's do um, it. These are, these are definitely quick hits, so you don't have to think very hard. All right. I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> what, what is your hidden talent? Uh, my hidden talent is, oh, shit. I don't really have a hidden talent. No, no talent's hidden. <laughs> <laughs> no talents. Um, what is your favorite kind of pizza? Oh, just a classic pepperoni, please. New York style or like thick crust? Uh, literally, I will eat it at anything. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> uh, what is your uh, who or what is your go-to song or artist? Ooh, I love, we mentioned Switchfoot. I'll go with them. I love Betty Who. I love Dua Lipa. Um, and recently, ooh, I do like the new Justin Bieber album, too. Wow. All right. Uh, we won't come <laughs> into that. Um, what, last question, what is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word. Uh, you know what? Let's just go cheesy. I love the word love. We we all need it in our life. Uh, we need to spread it. And uh, so yeah, hashtag love. Hashtag love. I love it. <laughs> no pun no pun intended on that. One. No. Uh, all right, Nick. Thank you so much. Um, it was so good to talk to you, catch up with you, hear your stories. If people want to follow you, how can they do that? Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, no, thanks for having me. Um, I'm at Nick McCarville on both Instagram and Twitter. I have a Facebook page as well um, where you can follow my journalistic endeavors. And every Tuesday, myself and Blair Henley, she is a fellow tennis reporter. We do a web show called Tennis Tuesday, and it's conversational. It is chill, relaxed, very social forward. Uh, and you can find us on YouTube and Facebook, Tennis Tuesday. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Ah, I want to thank Nick so much for joining the show. We could we could have kept talking for hours, and obviously it would have been better if we'd been able to be in person and uh, enjoy a beer. Or uh, we didn't get to it. It's it's such a funny story. Um, when I moved to New York, I feel like we we met up a couple of times. Um, once before I actually moved there, and then once definitely after I moved there. Um, the first time he introduced me to a place that I love dearly now, 
Um, it's a place called Birch Coffee that they've since moved from their original location, um, which was in a fantastic place, but their lease ran out and they built out some new spaces and they've now got a couple of locations. Um, but great local coffee shop um, there. But the second time we met, we met up at a place that I now love dearly as well, uh, Shake Shack. And we met at the Shake Shack in Madison Square Park. If you've ever been to New York City, it's a beautiful park, one of the many beautiful parks there in the city. Um, but it's an outdoor uh, outdoor restaurant. So essentially you walk up to the window, you order your food, and you eat it outside. You take it to go. You're obviously taking it to go anyway. Um, but we, we met there for a late afternoon uh, dinner. We were eating, getting to know each other. He was talking to me about I feel, feel like this was about the time when he was getting that New York Times uh, gig. And... It started to rain, so we quickly packed up our food, ran into under the subway, um, and and we just kept talking there and said goodbye. Just one of those funny New York stories that um, uh, are kind of locked back in my head until a conversation like like this brings it back out. But uh, Nick is such a fantastic reporter; he's a fantastic person. Um, we could talk tennis all day long. I'm going to answer a question that I actually asked him. My favorite tennis match that I probably ever watched would have been um, the Agassi Baghdadis match at the U.S. Open in uh, two, uh, 2003, 2002. Um, it was Agassi's last year and uh, one of the, just the best well-fought tennis matches that I've ever seen from two men who just had nothing left in the tank at the end of the match. So, um such a such an interesting experience. I love that we have the same uh, background in Christian music. Um, life is kind of funny that way. So um, this is episode one of season three. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I cannot wait for what's what's to come um, and our, with our future episodes and the future guests that we have lined up. Some incredible, incredible stories. And I think something that Nick said really explains and and captures what i want to do with season three here uh, he, he he talked about tennis having just this love of story i think we all personally just have a love of story and that's why i'm doing this podcast that's why i'm trying to find these really unique and interesting people with these these different backgrounds who have good story good um good humor and really really good truth and i think that's the important piece so Thank you for listening to this first episode of Season 3. I hope you'll come back in two weeks for our next guest. Um, I think you'll like him too. Definitely kind of a different different story that he's, that he's going to tell. Um, but I think you'll enjoy it. So please come back next week. This episode was mixed and produced by Sprout Media. They're based in Des Moines, Iowa, a digital media firm. You can, they can be found at gosproutmedia.com and also at gosproutmedia on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The music for this episode is Ukulele Fun by Raphael Crux. The credit for the music is found in the show notes. And as always, we can be found online at Live It Well Podcast on Instagram, or you can find me, your host, on Instagram at Richard Dior. We'll talk to you in two weeks.